Hello and welcome to Asbury Sermon Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You're about to hear a sermon that was preached in the context of a worship service at Asbury Free Methodist Church in beautiful Perth, Ontario. We trust that it will help you move closer to Jesus. So without further ado, welcome to Asbury Sermons. Well, uh, Tammy read from Mark chapter 1 this morning. But we're going to begin in the home of a Roman centurion this morning. We're going to begin in the home of a Roman centurion, and in about 22 and a half minutes or less or more, I will finish up this message with another Roman centurion. So, uh, sometime after Jesus Christ rose from the grave, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for that. Uh, Peter is preaching a sermon in the home of a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. It says he's from the Italian cohort. He's, he's preaching in a place called Caesarea, named after Caesar. And the book of Acts tells us that Cornelius was a God-fearing man of prayer. He was generous to the poor. And God led Peter to his house because God is no respecter of persons. Just so you get the right idea about centurions, okay? Centurions earned their status after years of service, okay? On the front lines. These guys were battle-hardened, hard-bitten men. That means they were cynical. They were tough. They carried staffs with them, and they, were, they had permission to beat their own soldiers, and they did. These guys were disciplined, they were strict, they carried out Caesar's commands, they were executioners, okay? Not guys you wanted to mess with, okay? And here is Peter in the house of a Roman centurion years after Christ has risen from the grave. And he's sharing the extraordinary life-giving account of his time with Jesus. It's like a Coles Notes version of the Gospel of Mark. Now, there's probably people here who don't know what Coles Notes is, but raise your hand if you do. Uh, it's a summary, a precy. If you're, probably, if you're over 35, you know what Coles Notes is. If you're under 35, probably you don't. It's a summary of really the book of the Gospel of Mark. And here is what he says in the house of Cornelius. He says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of, of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him on a cross by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Peter is 
preaching a sermon to them. He's telling them a story, the story of what he experienced with Jesus. Okay. He has no reference point like a New Testament. It hasn't been gathered yet. What he's doing is he's sharing his story from the years that he spent with Jesus. And it's the same story. He's preaching firsthand, first person, not something he was told, not something he read. This is his life, okay? This is a guy who lived with Jesus for three years. Now, Peter would eventually get into trouble for doing this. He ended up in Rome where he gave his life for the faith. But before he was martyred in Rome, Peter had to get his story written down. And the Gospel of Mark is Peter's story. It was the repeated and unanimous belief of the early church, and scholars agree that Mark's Gospel, Mark's Gospel is an accurate record of Peter's teaching. Captured faithfully by Mark, acting as Peter's scribe. Now, Mark is mentioned in the New Testament. He was a ministry companion of both Peter and Paul. So when we read Mark's gospel, it's Peter's voice and experience that we're hearing. You know Peter, fast-paced, factual. I golfed uh, this past week with a friend of mine, and uh, you know how some people tee up the golf ball and they put it on then they step back and then maybe they lower it and raise it maybe they take a few practice swings not this this put the ball on bang off it goes right this is the gospel of mark it's fast-paced and it's factual it is a written account of events as peter experienced them now, this was written on papyrus copied and became part of the inspiration and guidance and teaching that was circulating amongst the early followers of the Messiah. At that point, they weren't even called Christians. That happened later. The earlier followers of the Messiah were, were, were sitting, listening to this story. Now, think about someone hearing this being read. It's the first time they've heard it. Okay? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Would you put that uh, whole passage back up on the for me, please. That's how it begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, somebody might say, well, who is Jesus? What is, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus was a familiar name in those days. Okay? In Hebrew, it was Joshua, meaning to deliver or to rescue, and it's still a common name in Spanish countries. Right? You've seen the baseball players. Jesus Perdormo is batting next to, for the... Whoever, Jesus, and... Christ is a title, okay, so it would be like John the lawyer, okay? Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ, and Christ meant Messiah or Deliverer or Anointed One. So Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is how, John, or how Mark begins his gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, the Son of God. Everything is packed into that first sentence. The second part is the Son of God, and it says, you know, when Jesus came up from the baptiz waters of baptism, a voice came from heaven. 
You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Son of God. Now, Peter is an unschooled fisherman. Okay? Peter did not go to rabbi school. He was an unschooled. In fact, somewhere it says that, that, um, that they were unschooled men. People noted that they were unschooled, untrained. So Peter was a fisherman. He came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Okay. And in Mark's Gospel, Mark makes sure that this is underscored. And I, I want you to hold on to that. I'm going to come back to it later. Mark says this is good news or the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, good news, what, what, was, what would the first century description of good news be. Okay. Good news for us may mean something different, but I want to read to you what Paul said to the church in Corinth, in Corinth about what the good news was. Okay. Paul says this, now I would remind you brothers and sisters of the good news I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you were being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. The good news Paul is saying, I re repeated it to them, the Son of God incarnated. Okay. He died for our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised, and there were many witnesses to that. That was the good news that was being shared in the, in the first century. Okay. Now, if someone were to say to me, Jeff, what's the good news? What's the good news? Well, I could say the same to you. If I said to you, what is the good news? What are some things you would be thinking when I said that? Go ahead. What's the good news? Thank you. Someone else. Putting you on the spot here. Pardon me? He died for us. There is a God in heaven, and God loves us. And I am separated, I was separated from God by the sinful, unholy choices that I made in my life. The decisions that I made that hurt me and hurt other people separated me from God. For me to have fellowship with God, the penalty for my sin had to be paid, and Jesus was the, my substitute. He paid the penalty for my sin with his death on the cross. And when he died, all my sin and all the power of sin and all the accusations of sin against me were nailed to that cross. And Jesus died and he rose from the grave. Hallelujah. And that gave me resurrection life. And I live in that resurrection life now and I have fellowship with God because of it. That's the gospel for me. That's the gospel as it's been fleshed out in the whole New Testament. But I tell you, in the first century, the good news was the story of Jesus Christ. 
the Son of God, who came, preached, healed people, took care of people who were, yes, sent the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and was raised from the dead. And I think the amazing thing in all this was, was that it was not something that people read, okay? Peter and the others in the first century experienced the living God in a fresh new way that changed their lives forever. Now, the book of, of, uh, of Mark uh, begins with this message, the message of Isaiah the prophet. Those, those were quotes from Isaiah, but also from Exodus and Malachi. Now, Mark is tying together the ancient word of the Lord with what was happening right then. Okay? Mark wanted us to know that God had planned the mission of Jesus from the beginning of time. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies. And we sing that. We're going to sing it next week. Um, uh, the song, King of Kings, In the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes, to fulfill the law and prophets. To a virgin came the word. Jesus fulfilled the law and prophets, and that's why those scriptures are in there. Isaiah, Malachi, Exodus, Mark is tying the Old Testament that this Jesus is the fulfillment. Okay. Jesus has come, and he's the fulfillment. And John was baptizing people from Judea and Jerusalem, and he wore weird clothing, and, uh, and he ate high-protein, high-energy food. Um, if, uh, shout out to Kevin, but if Kevin was doing it, he would, it would be locust wrapped in bacon okay. with a honey glaze, okay? <laughs> and you could say, well, why are these little details about what he was wearing important? Well, they're not, they're there because these details, the camel's hair, the, the leather belt, they link directly back again to the ancient story of God's mission of Jesus from the beginning of time. And you can look that up in 2 Kings, how that fits together. But after Jesus was baptized, it says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. Well, Mark doesn't give us the details of that, but another gospel does. Matthew. Matthew tells us what the temptations were. Turn stones into bread. Jump off the temple, the highest point of the temple. And the false promise, I would say, of giving Jesus all the splendors of the world. But the devil used Old Testament Scripture with the temptations. If Satan used Scripture out of context to try and deceive Jesus. Well, Jesus responded with Scripture. He said, you know, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up with their hands so you do not strike your foot against a stone. And away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So part of resisting the devil is knowing God's word. Would you agree with me? 
Jesus' response to Satan with Scripture, I think, is instructive. We should never underestimate the power of the Word of God to counter the adversary. Paul included God's Word as essential in our struggle against principalities and powers of darkness. He said, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, again, I'm going to put you on the spot. Is there someone here this morning who can recite Hebrews 4.12 for me? For the word of God is, go ahead. Yep, keep going. Beautiful. Excellent. Would you, would you just stand up and, and declare that <laughs> so everybody can just stand up and let us, let us all hear it. For the word of God is living and active. Yes, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God is living, it's active. It, the joints and marrow, where marrow is where cells begin, right? It's, that's how deep the Word of God penetrates. Paul said that the Word of, that wrote to Timothy and said, every word of Scripture is God-breathed. So God who spoke the world into creation, that power, that's the Word of God, okay? It is full of living power. It's able to penetrate deep within our inner, innermost thoughts and desires, and it illuminates our impulses and cravings and feelings. Now, a few years ago, I was making a guitar at the home of a friend and who was a good guitar maker. And uh, I had made the body of the guitar, but the neck wasn't on yet, and somehow I dropped the body of the guitar on the cement floor. And there was a, a nasty crack on the bottom of it. And uh, my friend said, no problem. And he put a little bit of glue on it. And the glue followed that crack right down and then kept going deeper to, the, to a place that was invisible to the eye. I couldn't even see where it went, but you could see that the, 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 the glue was going there. It penetrated deep within places that I couldn't even see. And that's the Word of God. It penetrates. It is living. It makes us aware of sin. It keeps us from sliding down a slippery path. You know, our tendency is to, is to say, um, I, I'm the master of my ship. I will make the decisions about what's right and wrong in my life. Well, the Word of God challenges that and says, no, this is the Word of God. This is truth. And it keeps us from sliding down a slippery path. It gives us wisdom to pray, wisdom to make godly decisions and choices. And it refreshes the soul. And I say that because I, I feel like our souls can get beat up. I don't know how many thoughts we have a minute. I've read 35 to 40. Multiply that by an hour. Umpteen thoughts, okay, every hour hitting us. And even after a good day of leading a Bible study at a local, recently at a local 
a nursing home, I was driving away, and all of a sudden, phew, off my mind goes into this rabbit hole. And I'm, I'm driving, right? And I'm, I just pull it back with God's Word and apply His love-based truth to myself. It says, God's Word is a lamp to guide our feet and a light for my path. And it does provide power over temptation. Psalm 119 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So I'm just telling you, there is power in God's word. Know it, learn it, study it, memorize it. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. Now, testing and temptation are part of the spiritual life. Okay. If you take a step forward, you're going to be tested. God uses testing to prove us and to improve us. Satan, on the other hand, is the author of temptation. It comes from Satan or our own sinful desires. And Temptation does not come from God, Scripture tells us. Now, uh, does anybody here have mice in their basement? Yeah, okay. Do you, do you put traps out? What do you entice them with? Peanut butter works, yeah. Well, I do that too. I attract the mice with peanut butter or cheese to ensnare them, and that's what temptation is. Temptation is to lure us into disobedience, okay? To attract us to sin. That is what Satan is attempting. I love a quote from C.S. Lewis uh, in this regard. He wrote, Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. These little decisions about whether I'm going to follow God's word or whether I'm going to depend on God's word. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparent trivial indulgence in lust or anger or sin today is the loss of a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. What we think is important C.S. Lewis says, good and evil both increase at compound interest. That's why the little decisions you and I make every day are, such, are of such infinite importance. Scripture also tells us we have not been tested beyond what we can endure. Why? Because God wants us to succeed. Satan wants us to fail. God wants us to succeed. Verse 14 says that after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee. So Jesus had been up in Jerusalem. That's where John was baptizing. And after John was arrested, Jesus headed north to Galilee. And he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. Change your life and believe the message. But God's kingdom was not the kingdom that people were used to. It's, they didn't recognize it. See, 
the kingdom was upside down, typically the king requires your life for him. In this case, Jesus gave his life for you. It's an upside down kingdom. And, Jesus, and the message begins with repent. Why do we need to repent? Because we have sinned. We have broken our faith with God. We've sinned. We, we've made ungodly choices and we're separated from God by our sin. So repentance is, a, is turning from sin. A turning from the error of our ways to his life-giving way. It's a turning from the delusion of sin. This, this, this disorder, the fool in his heart saying, there is no God. That's the delusion of sin. But it's bigger than that. It's a radical change in one's life as a whole. Repentance is changing direction. So I'll give you an example. Okay? This is the way I was going. I'm repenting. Okay? I'm going this way now. And that's the same with our thoughts. Okay? Changing how we think. I didn't believe what God has said about me. Now I believe what God has said about me. That is repentance. It's believing what God has said about me and accepting what he has said about my sin. Some of the songs this morning we've sung are so beautiful in that regard. Okay, accepting what God has said about me. What has he said? You're chosen. You're forgiven. Okay? You're chosen. You're forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God has forgiven your sins. God is no longer counting your sins against you. Psalm 103 says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He is no longer counting our sins against us. So repentance is changing direction. It's believing what God has said about me and accepting what he says about my sin. Now, I started this message uh, talking about... Uh, the Son of God, and I said I was going to circle back to that later. Lorna began our worship this morning with Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. It doesn't mean compose a new song, it means sing with a freshness and thankfulness for the goodness of God that is new every morning. Sing like they sang in heaven. Those saints who tasted and saw that the Lord was good and have gone to be with the Lord, John tells us what they said. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's the song they were singing in heaven. A new song. You are worthy. You are worthy. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. As I make my last point this morning, and then we're going to sing Worthy is the Lamb. Peter, a fisherman who argued with his friends, 
about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He was an unschooled man who had been with Jesus. A man who denied knowing Jesus at one point. A man who came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Not because of something he read, but because of what he witnessed firsthand. And in the Gospel of Mark, which takes about an hour to read through, four times it is highlighted that, Je that Jesus was the Son of God. The first was what we read this morning when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. A voice came from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And later in Mark 3, Jesus was going about preaching and healing, and he encountered unclean spirits. And whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. Heaven declared Jesus was the Son of God, and hell declared Jesus was the Son of God. They agree on that one thing. When Jesus was betrayed and arrested and stood before the high priest, again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus answered unequivocally, I am. It was unambiguous declaration Jesus made. He affirmed that he is God in the flesh. And I began this message this morning at the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and we're closing with the words of another centurion. At his crucifixion, this hardened centurion, who had probably seen hundreds not more of people crucified and when he saw and stood in front of Jesus and saw how he died he said surely this man is the son of God thanks for joining us this week on Asbury Free Methodist Broadcast make sure to visit our website at asburyfmperth.com where you can subscribe and never miss a show if you'd like this broadcast you might want to check out our Facebook page Asbury Free Methodist Church until next week, take care and God bless.